We are coming today into the sixth week of our Emotionally Healthy Spirituality series. And this week, uh, we are looking at how we look, uh, as we begin to look outwards to the people who are around us, relationships in our lives, to the world at large, that we make incarnation our model for loving well. On Sunday, the 14th of June, Patrick Hutchinson became the figure at the center of one of of 2020's most iconic images. That's because Patrick Hutchinson was photographed in London in the heat of a Black Lives Matter protest, which had ended up in confrontation uh, with a counter-protest, and it had ended up becoming violent. He is a black male, and he is carrying a white, injured counter-protester to safety. Maybe you've seen that image. It made all of the headlines in the week that it happened. An interview with CNN the next day said this, Hutchinson told CNN he initially saw the man lying on some stairs in the fatal position surrounded by protesters. At that moment, he said, it didn't cross his mind. The man may be a counter-protester or hold prejudices, but he was trying to get him out safely. He said this, I have no idea who this man was. All I know is that he was there up to no good. Let's just say, Hutchinson told CNN on Monday, he wasn't there to support Black Lives Matter. In a moment, in an action, he incarnated care, respect, and love for this other man, even though the injured man had been violently opposed to him. This is incarnation. A number of years ago, I'd returned from a mountain biking trip to Scotland and I'd managed to break a bone in my hand. In the process, I'd taken my gloves off at the end of a long day uh, on trails up there. And when I took my glove off, my hand was just black and blue and massively swollen. And so when I got back, I figured I should probably go to A&E. The problem was that my hand was mangled so I couldn't drive. So my dad told me that he would take me to A&E. It was late on a Saturday night, and as you might expect at that time of night in Antrim A&E, it was full of people with mostly alcohol-related injuries. I believe the term is colorful. So we were sat there. We were there for ages. My injury was obviously minor, so we were kind of there for a long time. And I'm sat beside my dad. He is obviously delighted that late on a Saturday night, he sat around in the carnage that's going on in this A&E waiting room. And he's given off stink about it, right? As only dads can. It was at this point that a young man came in through the door after having kind of given his details and sat down beside my dad. And he's in a pretty bad way. He's pretty drunk and he is covered in blood. And I mean covered. He appears to have a cut somewhere on his head. Meanwhile, his face is covered in blood, fresh and dry. There's bits of dirt and glass everywhere, all over his face and his torso. His clothes are soaked. And he starts to pour himself out to my dad as he sits there. His life was in a bad way. It was marked with all sorts of poor life choices, one after the other. He wanted help. He wanted things to change, or at least he said he did, or maybe it was the alcohol talking. But as I sat there watching and listening this young man talk, in many ways, I was just on one hand in awe of my dad kind of listening to this guy, and on another hand, just kind of waiting for dad eventually to decide this is nonsense I'm checking out, right? But I'm kind of watching him, and I'm kind of thinking, wow, this is, this is incredible, right? And then he leans over, and he says this, and if I could just ring my dad, he needs to know where I am now. Maybe he could help. And my dad turns to him and says, well, do you need a phone? And the young guy says, yeah, I've managed to smash mine. 
And dad sitting there with his nice, shiny, not covered in blood iPhone in his hand, right? In his hand, turns to me and says without hesitation, here, son, give him your phone, right? Thanks for that, dad. He incarnated love to this young guy with my phone, right? Thanks for that. Incarnation. And as we made our way through this series. We've been saying that in our discipleship journey to become a mature follower of Jesus, we need to become emotionally healthy people, right? And the essence of a genuine spiritual life is to love. It's to love God, ourselves, and other people. And we all know that when you're emotionally unhealthy, it's difficult to love anyone or anything, And what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in many ways is best understood around the mystery of the incarnation. By that I mean how Jesus sent to earth could truly be God and man at the same time, okay? The wonder, the mystery of that fact. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it like this. In this way, two whole natures, the divine and the human, perfect and distinct, were inseparably joined together in one person without being changed, mixed or confused. This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Or in those unforgettable paraphrased words of Eugene Peterson on John 1, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. In Jesus, we follow one who came from heaven to earth and so confined and constrained himself to human form to human hunger and thirst. He came in absolute dependent weakness as a baby, constrained himself to time, didn't he? He grew, he aged, he matured, he developed, constrained himself even to death. This is one of the great mysteries and historically great debates of the church that in Jesus, we see one who is fully God and yet fully man. It is astonishing. How? How could he be that? How could he do it? How could he be both of those things in fullness and yet still be one person? And the thing is that when we look at the incarnation, we are looking at the method of God's redemptive, restorative plan for earth, right? God knew that in order to reach and redeem us humankind, he would need skin because we need his skin, not just the knowledge of who he is. When we see Jesus' incarnation, we are looking at his love. When we see God incarnate, we're looking at his love. Love put on skin. And in this action, God invaded our planet and changed it forever. Nothing can stay as it was because of the incarnation. And in the same way that God knew that to save us, he would need to put on skin, we need to know that we are to be that skin to change our world too. But here's the reality. Incarnation is hard. In 1963, Martin Luther King wrote one of the great pieces of American literature. He arrived in Birmingham, Alabama uh, to lead a peaceful demonstration. At the same time, a court injunction had been raised that was put in place to stop that demonstration. And yet he led it anyway, which resulted in his arrest and being led to jail. A short time after that, a letter was written by eight pastors and a rabbi, and it was published in a Birmingham newspaper. And it suggested that Martin Luther King had been too impatient and that he should have waited. And this was his written 
response. I guess it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you've seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you've seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and brutalize and even kill your black brothers and sisters with impunity, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her little eyes when she is told that fun town is closed to colored children and see the depressing clouds of inferiority begin in her little mental sky and see her begin to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing a bitterness towards white people. When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in, in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white men and colored. When your first name becomes nigger and your middle becomes boy, however old you are. And when your wife and mother are never given the respected title missus. When you're harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro living constantly a tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next and plagued with inner fears and outer resentments. When you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. These are in uncomfortable, powerful words. What is he doing? In those words, Dr. King was trying passionately to get white Christian leaders to walk in the everyday shoes of African Americans. And in so many ways, the goal of the church on mission is to incarnate, to learn to walk in other shoes as we seek the goal of incarnating Jesus to them. St. Basil, the bishop of Caesarea in the fourth century, wrote this, Annunciations are frequent, incarnations are few. And the thing is that if you've ever sat and listened, and I mean really listened, that someone pours themselves out in honesty and openness about their lives, I mean the moments of real brokenness in the lives of people that you are around, they don't want our advice, do they? Nor do they give us this opportunity as our invitation to tell them how to fix them. More than anything, they just want us to know what the world looks like and feels like from where they stand. We aim at incarnation, to see the world from where others stand. And in the church, it's sometimes difficult to distinguish between loving people for who they are versus using them for how they could join us in our mission. Schizero writes this, I was going to enter other people's worlds only enough to change them, not necessarily to love them. And that's not incarnation. Incarnation, when it's real, takes our love. It needs our skin. We aim at incarnation if we're going to reach the world with the message of Jesus. And today is the sixth block in becoming an emotionally healthy follower of Jesus. And it assumes that you've made progress in the previous five, okay? Just to recap, they were looking beneath the surface of our lives, breaking the power of the past, becoming people of brokenness and vulnerability, receiving the gift of limits and embracing grief, pain, and loss. The question is today, how are you doing? 
Are you making progress with those? Are you beginning to talk honestly with yourself and with others about those five pillars in your life? How are you feeling today? How are you? Because the extent to how we love well will be determined by how well we make our way through those previous five blocks. When we moved into this building that we're in today, in April 2019, I had the great privilege of preaching into that moment for this congregation. And I said this, we're not here to fill this building with people. We are here to fill this city with life. Here's the thing, the only way we get to do that is to be people of incarnation. People who learn to walk in the city's shoes and bring the life of another world, the kingdom, to those we are learning to walk alongside, to those whose shoes we are learning to live in. We bring the life of another world to them. Incarnation was always this church's mission statement. In lockdown and in Project Restart, to family life, relationships, workplaces, grief, business, and every part of our lives. And if we want to do that, then we need to learn to walk in three dynamics at work in Jesus' life. And this is them for today. Entering another's world, holding on to yourself, and hanging between two worlds. The first of those today is to enter another's world. I don't know about you, but in my experience, uh, both in my own life and in doing life with other people, anybody that has ever been in a long-term relationship before will know that one of the make or break moments in the relationship is when you go to your other half's house to meet their family, right? Right? Because it's the moment that you find out just how much of a weirdo this person that you fall in love with really is, right? You only really know when you begin to get access to the inner parts of their life, their family life, their home life, what life looks for them when they close the door at the end of a day, right? You find out just how much of a weirdo they really are. You find out if they collect stamps or have some sort of strange addiction to Tamagotchis or Build-A-Bear. You find out the family dynamics, whether they're touchy daily huggers, people who kiss on both cheeks, whether they're standoffish, you you meet all of the other family members. I mean, if you get invited to some sort of Christmas gathering, you meet like their weird Auntie Eileen, right? You meet everyone. You step into their world and it's the moment you decide you're in or you're out. And as we become emotionally healthy followers of Jesus and feel the hunger in our lives to take our place in God's mission to the world, we realize that we are called to love other people. And just as Jesus' love for us is seen in his incarnation to us, we are called to do exactly the same. In loving someone, we need to become someone. We need to step into their world. We need to become love that puts skin on. And at the heart of this process, right, is listening. And if we're honest with ourselves, most of us, especially in Christian leadership and in any form of leadership, talk way more than we listen. And yet listening is the key to understanding someone and beginning to step into their shoes, isn't it? Among the many comments that we got in cards and messages following the death of my mom, one of the most frequent comments written in those cards again and again was about how she listened. And throughout my life, I can remember so many occasions with us being in all sorts of locations and people seemingly just coming up out of nowhere to her, sitting down beside her 
and beginning to open up and tell her things about their lives that they probably hadn't told anyone before. Like in restaurants and waiting rooms in parks and at conferences, it was nearly always young men for some reason and they just opened up and she always listened. Never in a rush to get away, never dismissive. She always made them feel like they were the most important thing in the world at that moment. You see, to be heard is an incredibly powerful thing, isn't it? On a Prison Alpha course a number of years ago, I watched a group leader ask a young man, as we ask again and again and again on Alpha courses, uh, the question, well, what do you think in response to one of the topics? To which he paused, looked at the course leader and said this, you know, this might be the first time in years that somebody wanted to know what I think. Listening is powerful. Listening is potent. Listening is disarming, and it's the first step in entering somebody else's world. David Augsburger writes this, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. In other words, most people, when they're heard, feel loved. And throughout Jesus' life, he had so many interactions with people, right? In that three-year ministry, we read of just so many times that Jesus spent time one-on-one with very small groups or individuals, right? Matthew, Nathaniel, a prostitute, Nicodemus, a blind man, a Samaritan woman, and so and so on and so on. And on one occasion, he had this interaction with a rich young ruler. And this is how we read it in Mark 10, Mark 10, verses 17 to 22. This is what it says. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. I love that line in verse 21. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Jesus was present, never in a rush, interested in people's lives. He looked at him. I mean, really looked at him. The message translates it as he stared deep into his eyes and he loved them. And as much as last week I was encouraging us as we walk through pain and grief and loss in our lives, not to hold back when we talk to God, but to speak up and speak from the heart of how we feel to the one who listens, we need to listen to those we aim to show love to, to look at them and to love them through listening. And the thing is that when we listen to other people, what we're doing is exploring by questions, aren't we? And the thing that we need to do as we do it is that we need to stay present in every answer. You see, the temptation is always to be absent, isn't it? Thinking ahead about what we're going to say, how we're going to respond to what they're saying, right? We're not listening. We're somewhere else. We're spending more time in our response than we are in listening to what the person is saying. You know, this isn't chess. These are people. And I have learned in my life that how I listen will form me way more than how I speak. 
who I'm listening to, how I'm listening. Am I even listening at all? When I hear what others' input has to say in different seasons of my life, it sounds different. What I aim to do about it afterwards, how I listen will form me way more than how I speak. And in particular, when I am trying to love others well. Have you ever noticed throughout Jesus' life and ministry, particularly with the disciples, at how he asks way more questions than he gives answers? When you look at a snapshot of Jesus' life, whenever you read through the gospel accounts, when you do that next time, notice just how many questions Jesus asks. I mean, at points it feels almost as if the disciples are going mad, like they're cracking up at the fact that Jesus won't just answer the question in front of them, right? They want him to just give them the answer, but he doesn't ask it. He asks yet more questions. I know this was a familiar technique of the time for rabbis and for people in the wisdom tradition, right? That's what they did. But it's incredible that the one who held and spoke the words of life, true wisdom, true prophecy, true love, chose to ask so many questions. He held the words of life in his hand, and yet he asked so many questions. He was aiming his disciples at incarnation. And how did he do it? He asked lots of questions. The first aim of incarnation is to enter another's world. And if we want to do that, we need to start by listening to them. But secondly, we need to hold on to ourselves. We need to hold on to ourselves. These are the words of John 13, verses 1 to 5. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had been already prompted had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. See, this is a passage that we read time and again in church. And often it surrounds just how remarkable it is that Jesus, fully God and fully man, washes the feet of his disciples, right? I mean, this is divinity down on his knees, washing the dirt and the grime off the feet of his followers. It's an act of astonishing humility and service, right? And yet what gets me about it are the words that come just right before Jesus does it. This is what it says. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. All things under his power, all authority was his. You see, no one was more sure of who he was and why he was here than Jesus. Even before he kneels to wash the disciples' feet, we are reminded of who he truly was. You know, one of the challenges of entering other people's lives and incarnating is holding on to ourselves in the process, right? It's hard. The danger is that we become just like them in in trying to reach them and trying to listen, that you become just like them. You know, the passage we read from James right at the start, which was paraphrased in the message, right? It said this. It said that we become like those who hear and don't act and are like those who glance in the mirror, walk away, and two minutes later have no idea who they are and what they 
look like. We lose ourselves. We lose ourselves. Over lockdown, uh, we started watching The Fast Show again. It's one of the 90s great comedies. I realize there are people listening to this today and the majority of our church for whom 90s comedy is just about the worst thing you can imagine. No, there was gold in 90s comedy, right? And The Fast Show is one of the best. Anyway, there's, in it, there's this, it's a sitcom series, really. And in it, there's this character called Dave, right? And he's, he's always down the pub. That's kind of the thing. And it doesn't matter what any of his mates want to talk about on any given day, politics, football, economics, love, whatever. He just constantly agrees with everything each individual says. He contradicts himself constantly because he can't help himself but agree with everything that everyone says. And we become like that too, don't we? At times we empathize too much out of fear or desire for safety or acceptance. We want to feel safe. We want to fit in. We want to feel liked. We want to be loved. So we don't assert our preferences. We don't assert our worldview. And pretty soon we lose ourselves in the process. The result is that we become a non-person. James K.A. Smith writes this, to be human is to be for something, directed toward something, orientated toward something. We must never lose that. To be human is to be for something, and we must never lose ourselves, who we are and what we are for. Jesus is the model, and he became fully man and yet still remained fully God, right? He didn't lose himself in the process of being incarnated. We only have something to offer this world and mission if we are who we truly are. Over the years together with Joy, we have both realized that we are recharged in very different ways and also that we, we are spent in very different ways too. I spend nearly all day, every day around other people and yet whenever I, I want to be re- recharged, I am recharged in my own space and time, right? Mostly on my own. I like to do things like cycling and clear off and be in my own headspace. Joy, on the other hand, spends most days around kids and is recharged by time around key people. And so when it gets to the weekend, very often what we do or what we did initially was entirely rub each other up the wrong way by wanting to do polar opposite things. So when it got to the weekend and I was knackered, having spent a week, a week with people, I wanted to get away, right? I wanted to go and do stuff on my own and I would be in my head planning all of this stuff I was going to do over the weekend. In Joy's head, she was doing exactly the same thing. The problem was she wanted to do the opposite things from me. And so we would end up annoyed at each other, even offended at what each other's plans were. And yet change could only come by listening to each other, by stepping into each other's shoes, by watching them, by seeing that, oh, this burns them out. We only began to realize what it was that refueled each other by watching each other become disgruntled and more tired at the end of the weekend than they were at the start. See, there's a need to be ourselves as we love other people. Otherwise, we just burn ourselves out and we burn others. And in incarnating, we need to respect and honor ourselves by being true to ourselves. You know, sometimes I wonder if the great decline in the church in the West is because we have lost our way. We've lost our unique identity. We've lost the set-apartness of who we are as the people of God. On one hand, unable to listen and contextualize. 
So we're slow to change. We don't listen. We don't truly step into the shoes of the people we're trying to reach. We just hold on tight, determined not to change at all. And on the other, too willing to lose ourselves, accommodate and compromise our true identity. We seem to be unwilling to compromise on all the things that we should compromise on and too willing to compromise on all the stuff that we shouldn't. I love this line from David Bentley Hart in the preface to uh, his translation of the New Testament. This is what he has to say about the early church. When one truly ventures into the world of the first Christians, one enters a company of radicals, for want of a better word, an association of men and women guided by faith in a world-altering revelation and hence in values almost absolutely inverse to the recognized social, political, economic, and religious truths, not only of their own age, but of almost every age of human culture. Do you know what? I think we often think of ourselves in the church as moderates, but we are radicals at heart. This is who we are. And we must be true to both our personal, emotional, and physical selves and true to the eternal identity on our lives. Hold on to yourself. And finally, we learn to hang between two worlds. So Jesus was fully God, right? After all, who else could do and say and be the sorts of things that he did, make the sorts of claims that he did, the way, the truth, the life, the healings, the raising from the dead, fully God, right? As C.S. Lewis said it, Jesus was either mad, bad, or the son of God because of what his life looked like, what he did and said. Those are the only options he gives to us. He's either mad, he's either bad, or he's the son of God. And at the same time, he was fully human. He had a human body, human feelings, human emotions, human needs, and only a human could reach humanity. And to be both of these things meant that Jesus spent most of his life hanging between two worlds. Schizero writes this, Jesus hung between two worlds, heaven and earth. Life would have been much simpler for Jesus if he stayed in heaven with the Father. It's true, isn't it? Life would have been so much better in heaven. One of the bizarre features, I think, of Mark's gospel when you read it from cover to cover is how he performs an extraordinary act, right? Some form of healing or exorcism, something astonishing. And yet afterwards, he tells the person that is the recipient of that healing or that exorcism not to tell anyone. Why? It makes no sense to me. And one thought is that because he didn't want a frenzy over messiahship for a world that was frenzied over a specific type of messiah. The world around him was looking for a messiah who would come in power. And Jesus' demonstrations were in lots of ways demonstrations of power. So he told them not to speak. And yet what he did want his followers to speak of? The cross. Humiliating, painful, anguish. Jesus invited sorrow, pain, misunderstanding, and ridicule into his life, most of all by dying on a cross. I mean, he died literally naked and alone. And the truth is that loving people and living between two worlds is painful, isn't it? 
In some ways, it ruins our lives, right? Joy and I were just reflecting on as we wait for baby number two to come in a couple of weeks. We just said the other day while we were sitting late at night, like, what are we doing? Why are we doing this again? Like, we just got our lives comfortable again with Elle. It's like it settled down. We were back into a rhythm. We kind of had it all together all over again, and it was about to be destroyed by this new life because that's what new life does, doesn't it? It ruins us for the comfortable. It ruins us for the settled. And when we choose to incarnate, we are choosing to hang between our own world and the world of another person. The thing is that that's not about fixing things or being right. It's about loving people well. And that's an uncomfortable space, isn't it? If you've ever loved or tried to love somebody well, it's uncomfortable. And the sign of the Spirit at work in our lives is supernatural love, okay? It's not gifts. It's not successful results. It's not ministries. It's love. It's supernatural love. Don't believe me? Well, this is what it says in 1 Corinthians 13, right? To live between two worlds and the tension is possible only by love. These are these words. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. We read these words so very often at weddings. And though they stand as a true reflection of what love is, and therefore it's something that's important to speak into on a day where two people commit their lives together, they are written to the church to how we are meant to be together, to how we are meant to live toward not just ourselves, but other people. You see, these aren't words about weddings. These are words about witness. And they center on love. Learning to hang between two worlds is painful and only love will hold it together. These are the dynamics of Jesus' life when it comes to loving well. We enter another's world We truly try to walk in their shoes. We listen. We try to see the world from where they are, not rush out just to fix their problems or try to tell them how we would correct everything that's going on in their lives. We just aim at walking in their shoes. Then we hold on to ourselves. 
We stay true to who we are. We make sure that we maintain the identity that is rooted in who God says we are and what we are here for. We only have something to offer this world, salt and light, if we are true to who we are. And finally, we become comfortable with the uncomfortable reality of hanging between the two worlds of our lives. The tension of who we are and who we're trying to reach, the tension of the heaven that is within us and the earth that we are trying to incarnate to. We become comfortable with that and only love will hold it together.